0: Thirty six twenty six. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. All right. So usually at a place like a church, um, people greet one another with something like I just did. Good morning. And then maybe they'll say, good morning. Um, This is not a rebuke of your good morning, by the way. This is actually the beginning of the sermon. Um, Or if you're hanging with a couple rad dads from the Midwest, like myself, the conversation might be a little bit more like, what's good, Dave? Oh, just living the dream, crummy. Just living the dream. And then you go on to talk about Aaron Rodgers or the price of gas or something like that. It's usually pretty surface level and that serves a particular social function, and that's totally okay, and normal, and I'm here for it. But maybe, maybe this morning, you actually aren't living the dream. Maybe you're having a really bad morning, actually, or you're super bored already, and if that's the case, I have some bad news, I just got started. So whether you're feeling excited about seeing Dvorak at the Des Moines Symphony, just down the street here this afternoon, or you're dreading the overwhelming creep of seasonal affective disorder. Uh, we all began the day in some way the same, and that is that we took another breath. In and out, our blood is pumping, our eyes are blinking, our brain waves are waving, and uh, we made it. Sunday, October 22nd, 2023, congratulations, you did it. So there's a a lot going on beneath the surface in each of our lives. Of course, things like blinking or breathing or blood pumping usually are happening, hopefully, without our noticing. And we only think about them maybe when they don't work or some skinny doctor tells us to stop eating all the food that tastes good in the world. Similar to our body's activities, there are things about our identities we may forget about until we are confronted with something like bias or avarice because of these markers. Things like our race, our ethnicity, our gender, our sexuality, our political party, our education, our profession, our family of origin, and so on. And then beyond these things, (laughs) there's even more identity markers. Um, Things we might adopt that reflect our interests, like things that give us meaning. I'm a writer. I'm a nonprofit director, I'm a mom, I'm a teacher, I'm a musician, a union member, a developer, a business owner, a son or daughter, a gun owner, a gamer, a pickleball pickler, whatever that is. Like I said, there's a lot going on just beneath the surface of our days that informs how we experience life. And it's worth remembering this when we talk to people. People are complex. And all of us have some version of this going on, usually privately. And it happens different for each person. Some of of these things are out of our control, and some are malleable. Our history, our bodies, our cultures, our habits, and much, much, much more, the more you dig into this. Now, how this plays into our identities is actually interesting, and a rabbit trail we're going to go down here for a minute. So it's one thing to look in the mirror and say, I am a runner. It's another thing entirely to run, and then to do so consistently. Like, regardless of whether I call myself a tooth flosser, a dental hygienist is definitely going to know if it's actually happening. So who we are at an existential level works differently. For example, I didn't choose to exist. I didn't decide to be a human rather than a grasshopper. I didn't choose my mom or dad or where I'd be born. I didn't choose to have the skin color of a naked mole rat. In other words, there's a lot going on that I didn't choose and that was just handed to me for better or for worse. So we learn in the scriptures that God created Adam and Eve in the garden and that it was good. Death enters the picture through sin which separates us from ourselves Others, from creation itself, and from God. But God presses in, God covenants with a man named Abram, and though uh, and through whom a chosen people, namely the Israelites, would be a blessing to the nations of the world, they would serve as a type of priesthood to humanity, an ark, if you will, of God's character. God promises a messiah to Israel, and it turns out that that Jewish Messiah is actually God himself in human flesh, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then the Messiah does the unthinkable. He actually offers himself. Gentiles, like myself, are included in this reconciliation plan for all creation. So whether we recognize it or not, God is always our starting point and our ending point we find this description of Jesus in Colossians 1, 19 through 20, which says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So if you're like an accountant today, you're really going to like this sermon because the word reconcile is going to come up a lot. So if you're kind of like a And if you don't know what Excel is, like me, basically, you're in trouble. So notice the way that this is phrased, to reconcile everything to himself. This implies that though creation experiences a fracture with God, he proactively closes that gap by offering us peace through extending us mercy. He absorbs the cost of peace to be possible. So let's pick it back up in verse 21. It says, Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So, this is a picture of a two part story that we're going to look at today death and new life. So, why in the world would God do this? Well, I don't know the mind of God, but one reason does seem to be that He created us as an act of His love and generosity. That is to share His goodness with us. He invites us to be caretakers in this wonderful and very complicated place called Earth. And God really loves you. He really loves this place. So there's an 89-year-old man who lives on a farm in Northern Kentucky near a little unincorporated township called Port Royal. He's a writer, an environmental activist, a cultural critic, and a farmer, and his name is Wendell Berry. There he is. That's not that long ago, actually. That was just, I think, last year that photo was taken. He was born on August 5th, 1934, and raised in Henry Henry County, Kentucky. His dad was a lawyer, and tobacco farmer. He went to the University of Kentucky and later went on to study writing at Stanford, launching his career as a writer. Now, Barry is no doubt a brilliant writer and thinker, and I highly recommend you read him if you're a reader. <laughs> but in my experience, or listen to him. It's, he's a great listen on Audible, too. But in my experience, when you read him, he's one of those people who's so good at the the phrase is cultural criticism that he sometimes, it feels a little bit like wounds from a a friend. He hits a little too close to home. He runs so counter to the vibe of modern America that he feels a little bit like an alien or a time traveler who lives in intentional seclusion in rural Kentucky. And to be clear, I mean that as a compliment. He is a true lover of place and a student of it, I would say. He's a lover of God-given limitations. He writes this in a poem. Breath, or I'm sorry, breathe with unconditional breath, the unconditioned air, shun electric wire, communicate slowly, live a three-dimensioned life, stay away from screens. Stay away from anything that obscures the place it is in. There are no unsacred places, there are only sacred places and desecrated places. Of course, the irony is not lost in me that I just shared this quote on a giant screen, reading from an iPad at like a co-working space in a downtown, but Wendell, He doesn't have a TV, or a computer, or the internet, or a smartphone, so I'll probably get away with this one. Um, But back to our identities for a minute here. Barry, he sees our identities and human flourishing itself as necessarily linked to places, stories, land, people, even pace, as opposed to sort of unbridled industrialization, maximized growth, and maybe so-called efficiency. He finds meaning in things like work and rest and just staring into nothing. But don't let that fool you. He is both surprisingly practical and prophetic, I might even say. And you could say that the, it, the example of his very own life highlights one way we cultivate meaning as people, and that is through finding satisfaction in our work or in making home. Another way we express our values or interests is through clothing. So these days, I'm projecting what I have coined deluxe dad bod chic. Of course, I'm being stupid here, but it is true that our garments we wear, they say something about us. Maybe they say something to others, even when it's unintentional or it's mindless. So earlier I said who we are at the soul level works differently. So that's where we're going to look as we move from death to life in this two-part story. The way the scriptures describe it is that in Christ we have a new self. So here's a description of the old self in Colossians 3. It says, therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Okay, so when we become Jesus followers, there is an intentional decision to take off the garments of the old self and its practices. Like I alluded to earlier, the way we know what a mistake is or injustice in the world is because it's compared to some moral standard. Thankfully, we aren't just compared to a set of impersonal laws just sort of floating out there in the universe. Our thoughts and actions are laid over the character of a knowable, loving God who is goodness defined. And he's inviting us into himself, the one who is pure, the one who is generous, and so on. As it is said in verse 10, we are being renewed in knowledge according to, do you remember what it was? According to the image of your Creator. Because we're made in God's image, there is an undoing of the curse of sin happening in our hearts and in the world. So I'll say that again. Because we are made in God's image, there is an undoing, like an unwinding of the curse. Maybe I think about this, the untangling of the cords that I do every Sunday, right? It's an untangling of the curse that's happening in our hearts and in the world. But there's at least one trap I can think of and probably one flavor of that particular trap called self-judgment. Judgment Judgment isn't actually your job. It probably goes without saying, but uh, Paul here is not saying we take judgment into our own hands via like self-inflicted capital punishment when he's talking about death. Death is already slowly doing its work in our bodies, whether you like it or not. And I am 40 this year and so I'm allowed legally to say stuff like that. I don't make the rules. So no, instead Paul is saying we ought to be proactive to weed out things like greed, sexual perversion, anger, and so on. And here's the thing, this stuff runs counter to who you were made to be anyway. Jesus' death and resurrection testify to that. Our consciences also also testify to that. And others who love you, they may also testify to that when they see and experience sin in your life. Because it affects them. So remember the words of Jesus to Nicodemus as recorded in John 3. It says, for God loved the world in this way. This is a very, very familiar passage. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. So the bad news is that the ship has sailed on your perfection. That might be news to you. certainly isn't news to me about myself. But you know what? God still loves you. And that means you should love you too. God moves toward you. As it says in John 3, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God knows the worst of us and yet longs to be with us. Ours is a story of mercy and love and forgiveness. So part one of the story could be called in the Bible maybe the flesh or death, but whatever it is, it's separation. Part two of today's story is a new spirit or life. In Ezekiel 36 that we read earlier, It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So this is important. We don't condemn our way into observing the ordinances of God. We don't condemn our way to maturity. It just doesn't work. The spirit of a personal God takes up residence in the bodies of Christians, believers, and renews us. This is all relational language. So God's spirit directs us toward, well, God. Who could call it, I mean, you, one could call it godliness, right? We hear that word. And I, I've been thinking, I kind of like the word godfulness a little bit more, Godfulness. I just invented that maybe, but I think it's, a, it's a, a, a way that helps us wrap our mind around or doesn't trip us on the kind of the, the language of godliness that somehow gets wrapped up in self-righteousness at times. So hear that with a new, new ears, godfulness, toward intimacy with him, toward oneness, and this oneness that does not undermine things like diversity or your personality or mindless, it is not, not, rather, mindless uniformity. So oneness with God is crucial because he connects us all in a way that things like preferences, ideologies, sports teams, favorite bands, neighborhoods, and other things, they simply cannot. So what are the implications of part two of the story? This new life. Well, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul pick up on this in their teachings. Jesus, he cares about our physical needs, things like food and shelter and clothing and work and so on. And those are the kinds of things that Wendell Berry thinks a lot about. But God also cares about those things that spring up from our hearts. When We're more poor and naked in spirit. Jesus clothes us there, too. And he does this by continually offering what we need when we need it. So back in Colossians 3, Paul puts it this way, the second half of the story. As God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against one another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also so you are also to forgive above all put on love which is the perfect bond of unity and let the peace of christ to which you were also called in one body rule your hearts and be thankful so put on compassion put on love and so on these are not products of mass industrialization These are lovingly crafted royal garments from God. We are given the capacity to express and receive love as a gift from King Jesus. He offers us these garments as a way to clothe ourselves in his way of living and moving and being. This means we can fully embrace the one in whose image we're made. But we're still us. I'm still Matt but in my spirit, I'm adorned in the beauty of my maker. The garments of love can be bright and vibrant, like the boldness of Stephen. The garments of compassion can be humble in every day, like when Peter and John healed the lame man in the temple of Jerusalem. The garments of faith can look like Mary mothering the son of God. We put on Christ as we serve others, and in this way, we become Christ to them. So these people I mentioned are ordinary people whose spirits were clothed in Christ. The reason we see their lives as extraordinary now is because we see people who found themselves in God and were willing to be clothed by him. And when they did this, they found a new reflection. Staring into a mirror, they saw who they truly were made to be. They found a new way to be human In Christ, they were remade from the inside out. Okay, so how does this change the moment when we look in the mirror? And if, you know, if you haven't gathered this yet, I'm talking metaphorically speaking, but, you know, you can look in a real mirror too here. Well, it means that if I'm trying to obsessively manifest good things via positive self-talk, or on the other side, harshly judging myself in self-condemnation constantly, we recognize that these are insufficient, ultimately, as an all-encompassing way for human growth. We recognize that God is offering us patience, and then we dress in it. This is a new way of doing things. It's something that veils its power, It's a little bit like a secret cabin in Kentucky where we unexpectedly meet God. It's not a bad thing to set goals or dream dreams. In fact, what I'm actually trying to do is lay the foundation for a healthy version of that. That's actually kind of what I'm doing here. But we need to examine where we plant the trees to grow. We clothe ourselves in grace because God is gracious. He defines the terms of morality in the first place. And so grace is defined for us when we come to contact with God. He gives us the very spirit who desires to lead us into graciousness. And so we put on the garments of what it means to be a person of grace. Now it's true that gracious people are gracious, kind of like runners run, right? We were talking about that. But in Christ, Grace begins with our recognition and our welcome of the gift of grace from God. We then extend that grace to ourselves and then outward to others and to creation. Without that inward to outward movement, we tend to demonize or dehumanize others because we first lose our internal peace. Without this, the flames of war burn from within and out of our hearts into the world. Thomas Burton put it beautifully, and I find this passage very helpful. He said, and pay attention to how he conceives of grace here. This is a little bit of a longer quote, but I think there's a payoff. Also, this is what the book actually looks like, so that's why it looks weird. All our strange ideas of conflict with God are born of the war that is within ourselves. The war between the two laws, the law of sin in our lower self and the law of God in our conscience. We are not fighting God, we are fighting ourselves. God in his mercy seeks to bring us peace, to reconcile us with ourselves. When we are reconciled to our true selves, we find ourselves one with him. Who will deliver me from the body of this death the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace is not a strange magic substance which is subtly filtered into our souls to act as a kind of spiritual penicillin. Grace is unity, oneness with ourselves, oneness with God. Grace is the peace of friendship with God. And if it doesn't necessarily f- bring us a felt peace, it nevertheless gives us every reason to be at peace. If we could only understand and appreciate what it means. Grace means that there is no opposition between man and God. and That man is able to be sufficiently united with himself to live without opposition to God. Grace is friendship with God. And more, it is sonship with It makes us the beloved sons of God in whom he is well pleased. So picture this. You wake up tomorrow morning. You take those first breaths. You brush, maybe even floss, your teeth. And you do your whole morning routine. You sit down for a few moments of stillness to remember who and whose you are. You say to yourself, I am a person of grace. I am formed by grace. My very existence is a type of grace. Today, I choose to put on the garments of my friend, the Messiah, King Jesus. God, help me to remember who I am, that he has restored me to be a person of grace. Anything less than that is an old mat that is masquerading as the new me. In 2022, Dorothy Wickenden, writing for The New Yorker, went to visit Wendell Berry's riding cabin. And I think we might have a photo of something. This is not 2022, this is probably the 60s. Um, Wendell Berry's writing cabin near the Kentucky River, a primitive 12 by 16 secret retreat that Berry built for himself in 1963. There's no plumbing, there's no electricity, Wigginen writes, curling photographs were taped to a wall. This is in 2022, remember. So this is, he's still alive, still at this place. Curling photographs were taped to a wall. Wallace Stegner, these are like writers, Wallace Stegner, Ernest Gaines, Donald Hall, and Jayden Keenan, and Thomas Merton. Merton, who I quoted earlier, was a Trappist monk. And I might say he has some pretty 2023 drip going on there for being in the 60s. Um, So Merton, who I quoted earlier, a Trappist monk and a member of the Abbey of Our Lady of Gethsemane. Guess where that was? He was in rural Kentucky, probably only two hours from Barry's cabin and maybe a 90-minute drive from his farm. They exchanged some letters back and forth, and usually Barry would submit poetry for consideration in Merton's magazine, Monk's Pond, which is kind of an awesome name for a magazine. They met at least once on December 10, 1967, and Merton died exactly one year later, December 10, 1968, at only 53 years old. So Barry and Merton both wrote a lot about how modern life, modernity, alienates people, or it tends to alienate people from work. How mass production society can dehumanize us and lead us to dehumanize others. They were kind of like brothers from another mother. Barry still cites Merton to this day, at like 89 years old. What's so compelling to me about how these two men have been able to influence the world is that they've essentially lived in intentional Hermitage, like they were hermits. What they've done that most aren't willing to attempt is pursue real solitude. A solitude with an eye toward revelation, not retreat. Toward clarity and not holiday. Toward labor and not consumption. Toward God and not the old self something i think both of these men found is you could say friendship with god they found companionship true communion they both found a co-worker in christ one who even accepted their occasional grumpiness which they're both a little bit grumpy at times in their writing or he he accepted them with compassion merton and wendell are definitely very different people but you can see the thread of god's friendship connected them. So what comes to mind when you hear a word like grace? Maybe your mind is flooded with some sort of cringy or even painful youth group experience. Or perhaps you sense relief. Whatever your reaction is, I encourage you not to gloss over how you react. Like our initial internal response to hearing a word like grace, it can teach us something about what or who is forming our thinking. And that trail, I would suggest, is worth exploring on your own with God. So of course, there are a lot of ways to define grace. But for our purposes today, we're going to move our story to its conclusion by focusing on one aspect of God's character that Merton highlights. And that is that we find true grace in oneness with God. So here is sort of the key thought for today. Oneness. Or intimacy with God does not minimize or erase your individuality or your personality, but instead it reveals who you really are. So I'll say that again, oneness or intimacy with God, it doesn't minimize you, it doesn't erase you, your individuality, your personality, but instead it reveals who you really are. And by extension that goes for families, it goes for institutions, it goes for communities and churches. So I can't emphasize this enough. God is not a killjoy. He is not boring. He is not one-dimensional. He is not stuffy. He is joyful, dynamic, multidimensional. He is the inventor of water and the inventor of waterfalls. Ears of corn and lobes of ears. I liked that one. Anglers and angler fish. You get the idea. I could do that for a long time. God really, really, really loves diversity. Just look at the planet we inhabit. There's something like two million species of animals that have been recorded and classified to this point. And some estimate that there could be as many like as like 8.7 million species of animals out there, which, and, and that's not even including like viruses and bacteria, things like that, which could push it at, toward a hundred million. Like the Diversity of life is absolutely astounding. God is so vibrant and full of life, and that is the direction we're going. Drawing near to God is one of the best decisions you could ever make. We are drawing near to a being of infinite love and mind-blowing creativity, and yet one who is gentle with us and positions himself as a servant, often veiling his work in supportive and invisible ways. So I think if I had to point out the number one thing that has gotten me through a difficult decade, personally, it would be that when even when I didn't feel it, I kept coming back to God in hopes that my friendship with him would bloom, that I'd find a true companion for pilgrimage, one who would really understand me, one who would believe me, one who would receive me, mistakes and all. And ultimately, we all need nothing less than the type of friendship only God can offer. No career or relationship or church or country or mission should draw us away from God. What I'm really trying to say here is that intimacy with God is worth the pursuit. And recall that he's also pursuing us It looks a lot more like joining a friend for a walk. It was also a lot less than say like trying to catch a dandelion seed that's flying away in the wind. Okay so back to our community. Our intimacy with Christ, so-called godliness, it does not turn churches like ours or communities or your life into mindless cultureless beige wastelands of mediocrity and uniformity. In fact, the closer we get to God, the more we experience things like what I would call a good apocalypse, a sort of great revealing of God's character unveiled through diverse people's places and things. All I'm trying to say is that God is actively revealing to you and to the world who he designed you to be. And he, he knew you would be before the burden of sin weighed you down both individually and systemically. And as an act of love, he extends this invitation to the entire world. He does invite us into a process of global renovation, but it is rooted in individual lives and local communities of love, like you and me, and like Gateway. This is the work before us. So the work of restoration takes time. Just ask anyone who does historical building preservation. It takes time because it is done with care. And there is special attention given to preserving the personality of something. God models this for us in his own patient, wise renovation. So Jesus' love for us isn't only transactional. It's not like an annual subscription we renew at Easter through church attendance. Grace is more like yeast in dough of our bodies, our souls, and communities. And that is not a dad bod joke, but it does kind of sound like one. Grace is like yeast because grace is alive and it lifts us. Grace is alive because Jesus is alive. So you could say grace is a living agent because Jesus is a living agent of oneness baked into every moment we experience. Every breath, every tear, every disappointment, every unraveling thread of death is met with new life. Without the beautiful and perfect standard of God's moral goodness and his personal love for us, there would be no framework with which we could understand or measure our sense of hurt or sadness or separation. We wouldn't need or understand grace without a belief that we are both scarred in more ways than we could ever imagine and that he can reconnect us with wholeness, a wholeness with God, ourselves, others, and creation. This is all grace because, like I said, grace is inherently relational. So we're invited into communion with God. We begin to recognize this when we give ourselves to sin, we aren't being who God created us to be. After all, that's what sin is in the first place. It's really just missing God. When we shrink or pull away or dominate or project or rage, it's all an act, the dying gasps of an old order deceiving us into a smaller, smaller, self-reliant, lonelier, boxed-up version of ourselves. So in closing, we see Genesis 6-8. It says, Noah found grace, or favor, in the eyes of the Lord. But I don't think grace here is simply a sense of pity involving God condescending to help the doomed. It does seem a little bit like that, but I think it's also because God liked Noah and because noah walked with god is what it says so brothers and sisters in christ the friend of noah is your friend too noah found favor with god and in christ we have too god loves it when we walk with him it shouldn't be a surprise that the one who created friendship takes joy in accompanying us through life Is our relationship with God different than others? Of course. We worship God. That's a pretty big difference, hopefully, between how you treat your other friends. But it's, so he's not just an average friend, but it isn't a friendship devoid of reverence. It's also one that is dynamic. But this is my charge, find or rediscover your friendship with God as a celebration of grace. Invest time, even if it begins small, in learning to walk with God. Learn again, or for the first time, to like God. Practically, one thing that's helped me is to try and dedicate daily, like 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening for prayer walks. Uh, There's a lot of things we could go through on the practicals, I'm gonna just assume you can think through this with the Lord. A few, few, maybe a month or so, ago, someone who was speaking here mentioned Lectio 365, which is is an app that's been very helpful for me. I've really enjoyed that. Um, I've used the Church of England's daily prayer app very often, which follows the church calendar. Whatever works for you. But whatever it is, you'll find that God loves you. The real you, not a lesser you, but one that is being renewed. And together you take this spirit of reconciliation out into the world as you share the love of Christ in word and deed. Let's pray. God, I just thank you that you love us. God, I thank you just for your kindness. I thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you just that you want to be friends with us. (laughs) God, I don't think I... I can always wrap my mind around what it means to be personal with a personal God who invented friendship. But, God, I pray just that we could take steps, even teeny tiny steps this week, to set time aside to connect with you or reconnect with you. So we pray you just bless the rest of our service. In Jesus' name, amen.